Thank you for tuning in to the sermon webcast of Living Savior. We are one church serving in two locations, Asheville and Hendersonville, North Carolina. For more information, go to lsavior.org. So this past week, I learned a new word. The word is semiotics, spelled S-E-M-I-O-T-I-C-S. Semiotics is the science or the study of signals or communication that people give and also receive and interpret. So what you drive, whether it's a Prius or a pickup, what you wear, what you say, what you post, what you hashtag, how you might respond to something with a facial expression, all of those are signals of sorts that are sent out. And people, of course, in general, receive these forms of communication, and although limited, they interpret them. Whether it's their first impression or yours of them, or the 50th, the reception of and the sending of signals is what we commonly refer to as something that falls under the umbrella of communication. Now, I bring this up because in general, in general, people use the sending out of signals, what they wear, what they do, what they eat, what they say, and the interpreting of those signals from other people, not just as an end to themselves, but as the, a means. And in general, especially when times get really tough, people use the sending of signals and the interpreting of signals to, to posture, to to find some maybe higher moral ground, some higher social standing, to find a better sense of connectivity with the people around them, especially in difficult times like, I don't know, if there's a pandemic or a culture war going on? I mean, think of it. Who of us 10 years ago would have thought that the topic of wearing a mask could be potentially polarizing? 10 years ago, if somebody was wearing a mask, it'd be a dentist, a surgeon, maybe a painter or a carpenter, or somebody's about to rob a bank, but normally this wasn't really a big issue if somebody was wearing a mask. And then when this whole pandemic thing really started, then it was the subject of hoarding along with toilet paper. Remember how crazy that was? Just this last week, there are people who are working at one of our local hospitals who just got an increase in the number of N95 mask rationing, just this last week. And now, after CDC and the news outlets kind of changed what they were saying, that homemade masks and mask wearing became not just a common thing, but maybe even a, a called-for thing. And, and whatever a person feels about that is not the point that I'm bringing or, or, or making, not the reason why I, I bring this up. It is, it is that you know this already, that there are some people, as silly as this is, who, by virtue of their wearing a mask or what they see in others, are already trying to send some type of signal or to make some type of personal judgment about that person as a whole. Isn't that crazy? That this is actually something that the news outlets are talking a lot about, how people are supposed to interact with and think about and be kind towards and not judge those that are or might not be wearing a mask. Signaling. Posturing. About a mask. Weird times. And then the whole... George Floyd thing happened. What a tragedy. Not that far after Ahmaud Arbery. How awful. And of all the, the things that can and should be said, because as biblical Christians we believe and know what is right and true as God the Holy Spirit has shared it in his word to have a love for all and to speak the truth in love, of all the things that maybe should be said even more, 
it's crazy to, on top of all the things that have gone wrong in, in that realm, that there are actually people who are using this as a platform to send out signals of sorts, not because they care for unity and solidarity, for peace and going about justice in the right way, but they're sending out signals because they're posturing, trying to gain some, some higher ground politically, powerfully, or to try and promote themselves without any real desire of helping those that might actually be helpless. And we find ourselves in these times, and as I reflect, this is the craziest time I can ever think of in my life, and no, I haven't been living that long, but I can't think of another time in my life when I've seen so many people grab the microphone as they can on their form or platform on the internet and create more division and dissension and distraction as more lines are drawn and more signals are shared. And I'm not really talking about all the good things that can be shared and the, and the positive effects that God's word can have through the, the, the mouthpiece and even the fingers of believers, which can happen. I am talking about never in my life have I seen, and I think it will only increase, so many people posturing, trying to make a, a point, not for anyone else's gain, but maybe to try and prove themselves to have some higher moral ground than the people around them, to try to make sure that nobody thinks the worst of them compared to what we're seeing in the world around us, to try and agree with certain headlines and reject certain other ones, to be so willing to, to get, gather together and to crowd shame or maybe even put someone or something or some institution out of business if they don't say or act in accord in the right way at the right time on the right platform. I've, I've just never seen anything like this, have you? And I can't help but wonder, what would Jesus do? Not just in the silly, childlike, social Sunday school realm, but literally, what would Jesus do if he if he physically was walking in and among the streets of Minneapolis, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Washington, D.C., and downtown Seattle, what would he do? What would he say if he took to the Twitter sphere? If, if we're going to pause for a second and think, I don't know, Jesus has never really been in a situation like this where he was kind of put in a socially awkward situation or scenario where he kind of was maybe encouraged to posture by others who were doing the same. We're kidding ourselves, as if there's anything new under the sun. Once again, God's word has its way of doing what only God's word can do, speaking to withering grass and, and, and flowers that fade, because it stands forever and it speaks truth in our day and age, as weird and nuanced and unique as we might think these times are. And as he does, he identifies the, the problem that we have in the world around us, where everyone is finding this rugged individualism not to be working out so well, and he brings us together by the power of his word to see that the uniqueness that we have compared to this world is that we are joined together and to God, who opens up our, our hearts to pour in his mercy instead of trying to, to find validation in our own self-performance. So as the entire world around us is posturing, Jesus takes the position of mercy. We see that in the gospel lesson that I just read from Matthew chapter 9. I invite you to have that open. Jesus' popularity is growing, and it's not because it's not because he's doing the things that are trendy. It's because he's taking the norms of the world and he's flipping it upside down. He's performing miracles, not to boost his, his following, but actually telling people to be quiet about it. 
He's helping the people that are lowly, that are outcast. Even the message that he shared nine chapters earlier in the Sermon on the Mount took the norms of the world and flipped them on their heads. As he highlights and even exalts the humble, the meek, and the lowly, and he even attacks the prideful, the powerful, and the popular. You even see that in the person that he calls to be his disciple, Matthew, a tax collector. The only people who liked tax collectors were other tax collectors, yeah, and the outcasts. They were hated. I mean, imagine one of your fellow countrymen being a sellout to the government whom you hated so that he or she could tax you and take your money and then give it to the oppressing rulers that you hated. Not only do you not like them, but now you view your countrymen as a, as a sellout. And what is more, tax collectors would usually take a little bit extra to line their pockets. Galilee is a beautiful place to live. And so these Jews, a thoroughfare from the east to the west, in a lot of respects, ran right by this northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, where Matthew resided. And so it's not like his fellow countrymen couldn't see the, the nicer clothes that he was wearing, maybe even in a nicer house. And Jesus calls somebody like that? But isn't this who Jesus is and what he does? I mean, he had just called Peter, James, and John, these ignoble, uneducated brutes, <laughs> to be his followers. Doesn't the Savior, from and with all mercy, have his way of reaching out, not to those people who prove their worth through posturing, but to make them worthy only according to his grace? Hasn't he done that very thing to me and to you? Born in sin and proving it again and again. Lost in a world that is wound up in distractions and living a life that is destined to death, not just in time but for eternity. What do we have to prove to a God whose standard is holiness? That even with the compilation of all of our good, would it reach holiness? We recognize that we don't fit that bill. God did not look at you ahead of time and think, well... Maybe there's going to be some potential. He did not look at me and say, I think he might come around sometime. Maybe not 2020. That's a bad year. But maybe 2021, Caleb might. No. There was nothing in us on our own. But God, the God of all mercy, sought us out. And by the power of his word and in our baptism, he put his name on us so that by his mercy, not our own personal worth on our own, by his mercy, he would change that which was sinful and lost and dead to being forgiven, alive, and his child now and forever. This is what God does when he calls people. He doesn't call them based on their worth. He makes them worthy because he, the God of mercy, calls them. In forgiveness, he saves them. And by the power of his word, he even commissions them. That's Matthew. That's us. <laughs> Jesus takes this position, not, not of posturing, but of lowliness. And you see that note even in verse 10 where there's this redundancy. I hope that you didn't miss that, that term. In verse 10, there's the same word. You might not be able to see it, but it's used twice where Jesus goes to dine with these people and then more tax collectors and known sinners come to dine with him. You know that when you have a meal, it might be a little bit weird to think of going to a meal right now with all the social distancing you've been doing. I mean, thinking of going to somebody's house and there's like five families and you're rubbing elbows with somebody, doesn't that just kind of give you the heebie-jeebies? Well, let me up the ante. Could you imagine, like in Jesus' day, reclining next to somebody? So you're kind of resting on your elbow. Maybe your legs are going a little bit this way and somebody else, their legs are going that way and you're you're kind of like talking to them, like your faces are about this close. Does that make you uncomfortable? 
I bring that up not just because it's weird to think of in our time, but Jesus is doing that not just with anybody. Matthew wasn't some isolated incident so Jesus could retreat and go be with the holier-than-thou's. No, he is with all of the other sinners and tax collectors, associating with, connecting with, even identifying with. Is that not sending some signals? The Pharisees sure think so. As they're interpreting the signals that Jesus is sending out, what do they say to his disciples? This teacher of yours. Nothing inherently qualitative in and of himself. This teacher of yours. The implication is clear. Look at what he is doing. They interpret Jesus to be associating with, connecting with, and identifying with sinners. These unkempt, uncouth, non-kosher impure, unholy people according to all social and religious standards. They're even known by the average Joe as being sinners. That's their label. It's like the jersey name. Everybody just knows. Yep, that's, she's, yep, he's one of those people. Sinners. And Jesus literally, it's abundantly clear while the whole world is posturing, even the religious elite of his day he takes the lowly position of mercy. Has a lot changed in the last 2,000 years? 2020 is pretty crazy, but has really a lot changed? You and I are able to see it. The things that I mentioned earlier. You look out in this world filled with racism and hatred, violence, lies, and giving in to lies the encouragement of the promulgation of false stories and the giving into them, to put it another way. The, the divide, the power grab, even all of the ways that so many people who may have a platform to do good are using this to send signals for their own personal gain, called posturing. I learned another term recently. It's called virtue signaling. You know what this is? I didn't know this. Somebody shared this with me. Virtue signaling is this practice where somebody speaks out of their opinion based on what they wear. They send signals of sorts that demonstrate their virtue, their good character, especially over and against other popular opinions that they disagree with. See just a little bit of that in our day? I bring all of this up not because this is really the subject that we should be considering. I bring this up because if you and I can so readily see this in the broken world around us, can we just as easily see this in the Pharisee that loves to live right in here. Scripture makes very clear that our hearts are not filled with the tendency to give in to God's holy demands, to lower our position, and to succumb to everything that God desires, and to shun what the world says will be for our personal gain. No, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit's inspiration in Romans 7, says the good I want to do, I do not do. The evil I don't want to do, I didn't just do it once. He says, I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. <laughs> I echo that. One ancient Christian put it this way. The, the sinful heart is turned inward on itself, taking all of God's holy blessings and bending them to serve no one else more so than myself. If the world is a macrocosm, then can we see that living right in here is a microcosm of what we identify out there? 
I think of a, a man that I know, a wise old man, who even though he might be out of touch with the cool kids because he's old, has a way of reaching out to people that are totally different than him. And he cares for people when he knows, he has to know that he's going to get shunned. And he loves people even then when they're difficult. I've seen somebody yell in this man's face, and he simply responded with the coolest attitude, I love you and I'm listening to you. And I think of all of the times when this wise, learned, respectful man with so much experience probably could have justified something a little bit worse than I love you and I'm listening to you. He didn't. Mercy, Jesus says, not sacrifice. I think of the times when maybe you or I have received a compliment for doing something that was religiously right, and we really liked it. When, our, when words of praise didn't just echo in our ears for a time, but maybe we like to write them on our hearts to show ourselves what a good person we are, and maybe God should look with his glowing face upon us. And the point of all this is simply to say what you and I already know, that yes, the world is fill in the blank, but as we pause and look at ourselves and the tendencies that we ourselves have according to our, our own sin and to be turned inward towards ourselves, it is into this world and into these ears and into these hearts that the great physician of not just the body but the soul says that he does not come for the people who prove to be righteous and prove to be healthy. He, the physician, comes for the sick. So as you look inside and you think, with Paul, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched woman I am. Who will save us from this body of death? Praise be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sign, the signal of all of God's mercy. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you know who he's quoting? He's quoting the prophet Hosea. Hosea, the prophet in the Old Testament, who is called by God not to just use his words, but to use his actions to marry a prostitute who would leave him again and again and have children with her so that it would be a visible preaching of God's word to these people who were literally prostituting themselves out to the religions and the paganness of the world around them. Mercy, not sacrifice. This outward show, God says, I want nothing to do with it. This posturing, this way that we might try to build ourselves up and look good on our own, God has nothing to do with that. Instead, and I'll say this, because the reason why is for the person who finds himself in that position after posturing, they have no need for a Savior. If I prove myself to be so righteous, what, what need do I have of the God of all mercy? None. Little to none. And it is the God who already knows our need who says, I desire mercy, so that when in confession and in honest repentance we open our hearts and say, this is who I am, that God takes his mercy and he doesn't hold it back and look snidely down. Instead, he demonstrates perfect mercy because he is also the God of justice. This is Jesus, God's ultimate sign. God is perfectly just because he would take all sin and all death and condemn it on his son so that he would never ever condemn you and me. He can't. The debt has been paid. And in this way, the God of justice can also be the God of free and faithful grace, also known as mercy. He looks at you and he knows the sins that you're aware of and those that you can't even remember. 
the sins that haunt you in your dreams and the ones you didn't even know were sins. And he could follow you around with a yellow legal pad and do one of these things all day long, not even just looking at words and actions, but even assessing the motives of the heart and mind. And yet, by virtue of his mercy in the merits of Jesus Christ, he can't at all. They're thrown away. He even says through his prophets, I I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. So even if you would try to say to God, yeah, but Lord, what about this? He would say to you, I'm sorry, what was that? Drowned in the body and blood of Christ, crucified and risen to prove that you are forgiven. And in that gospel message, God gives you everything you need for a world around you. In a world where so many people are bent on proving themselves, you have a God who loves you, not because of who you are and not because of who they are, but just because. Doesn't that give you everything you need when you deal with people who are insanely difficult? You have a Savior who associates with the outcasts and identifies with sinners like them, like Matthew, like you, like me. Doesn't that give you every reason to find that person who is difficult? who is so difficult, so different. Maybe there's a complete cultural bridge that has not been spanned yet. But you have a Savior who reached out to you. So what would stop you from reaching out with the mercy that God has breathed into your nostrils and into your heart that you would reach out to them and connect them to the God of free and faithful love? God has given you everything you need, especially in a world where filled with posturing. You, you, dear child of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, can and will take the position of mercy. Think of all the things that you and I would like to say. It's a wonderful thing to be able to pause for a second. I had a grandfather who once said, if you, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all. He had a different way. He would say, if you can't say anything smart, don't open your mouth and prove that you're the opposite to people. Of all the things that we could say or live or see in this world, and maybe we've even seen glimpses of it, the God of free and faithful love gives us this. Mercy. Love to those who hate. Mercy to those who are difficult. Forgiveness to those who have guilt just as we do. And maybe even most importantly, forgiveness for the people who we see whose guilt is the greatest, ourselves. The Lord... Your Savior says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And this, and this alone, is the position that the Lord has put us in. All by his mercy, God grant it. Amen. Amen.